Um, John chapter 17, a little bit of the, uh, the setting for this. This is the last, oh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have Bibles available for you. Um, you raise your hand, one of the ushers will find you. Otherwise, everybody brought their Bible, because of course you guys did, because you guys are the diehards. One over here. All right. So, setting, that's where I was. My mind was like drifting. So, setting, this is the last uh, time that Jesus is spending with his disciples before his arrest, before he goes to the cross, and before he's put to death. Um, it's the last time they're going to hang out with him, most of them, until he comes back when he rises again from the grave. So this is the very last part of that conversation. Jesus has talked to his disciples, and now this is where he is now praying for his disciples. So we're going to be in John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 9, but before we do that, we got to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've given to us and all you've done for us, Lord God. Thank you for the rain, um, even though it's a lot at once. Lord, we are thankful for it because we know we need it. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be with those who are uh, impacted by it, those that have to drive in it, those that have to uh, ride as passengers with the people who drive in it, Lord God, and uh, all, the, uh, all that it entails, Lord, when we get rain in Southern California. And Lord, I pray for... Uh, for our church today, Lord, as we uh, dig into your word, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord God, that you would uh, help me order my thoughts, help me to glorify you as I teach. And Lord, as we all learn together, I pray that, that you would do all those things that you promised to do, Lord, that you would comfort those that are hurting, that you would uh, convict those, Lord, that, are, uh, that need conviction. And for those, Lord Jesus, who just, uh, who maybe are just even wondering if you're even real, Lord, I pray that they would see and sense your presence today as we go through your word. Thank you, Jesus, for going before us and uh, cleaning up our messes behind us, Lord. So Jesus, be glorified in your church. We give this time to you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so John chapter 17, picking up in, well, we should really pick up in verse eight because it kind of sets it, but we, I started at nine. But anyway, verse eight, because I have given them the words that you gave me, Jesus talking to the Father, they have received them and have known for certain that I came from you, they have believed that you sent me. Jesus talking to his disciples, actually praying, talking about his disciples here, and talking to God saying, they have believed because you have sent me. They believe, they, the disciples believed that God sent Jesus. And Jesus says in verse nine says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is praying for his people, those who have believed that God sent Jesus. He's not praying for the world. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you've given to me. Why is Jesus not praying for the world? Is it, the world, is it, that, is it that the world does not need Jesus? No, the world desperately needs Jesus. So why is he not praying for the world? What is the solution, first of all, for the world's problems? Obviously, Jesus. How does God choose to reveal himself to the world? Through Jesus, originally, right? He had the prophets in the Old Testament foretelling the coming of Jesus, and then, in the weirdest turn of events, God decided, I'm going to set aside so much, and I'm going to show up as a baby. 
I'm going to show up as an infant. I'm going to put myself on their planet. I'm going to put myself under their care, which is mind-boggling for me. And I'm going to submit to you, Father, as I go to them, knowing ultimately that he would be mistreated, that he would be rejected, and ultimately that he would be killed by his own creation. That is how he chose to reveal himself to the world. God sent Jesus, and Jesus revealed the Father to his disciples. And then the plan we know going forward is that God uses his disciples and those that hereafter after him to reveal himself to the world. So why is he not praying for the world? Because he's praying for his followers. Because they're the ones, they're the Father's people. See, he says, I pray for them because they are yours. Our value comes from the fact that we belong to God. Our value is not in our abilities. It's not in our resources. It's not in how we look. It's not a how tall or how short we are. Um, it's not about which football team that we hope wins in the playoffs. Anybody except the Chiefs? Um, <laughs> sorry for any Chiefs fans. Um, our value is because we're gods. That is where our value comes from. And so often we can miss that and we can uh, like lose sight of God's value system. And all of a sudden we start looking at the people around us as valuable if they can do something for me. Do they make me happy or do they provide me with resources or are they kind to me or do they like me? But the ones that don't like me, they're obviously, they're just not, you know, so we... We sometimes miss out on the value system that God has because we start looking at it like the world. He prays for his followers because of the followers' people. Um, our position of belonging to God is what gives us value. And then in verse 10, we see that perfect unity between God and Jesus when he says, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. We see this perfect unity between Jesus and the Father and the Father. And then we see this, this weird thing that Jesus is glorified in his followers. So point one in your outline if you're taking notes. Jesus is glorified when his people are in unity. This is the, because uh, the, we do this series called Life and Connection. So we start with life and connection with God, life and connection with one another, that was last week. And this week is life and connection with the world. And Jesus is glorified when his people are in unity because when his people are in unity, then we are effective. And we're gonna see that as we go through here. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so the scriptures may be fulfilled. So we see there that Jesus is leaving, or if we look closely at it, we see that in some way Jesus has already left. He says, he says, while I was, well, wait, 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 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus somehow has already left, and he prays for his people the ones that are staying. This is the first time for the disciples that they are gonna be separated in this way from Jesus. They've gone out away from him for a while, but they've come back to him. This is the first time that they're going to be truly separated from Jesus, which uh, we may not understand the same way because we have never seen Jesus face to face. We've never walked arm in arm with him. We've never shared a meal with him. 
this is going to be a huge shock for them. And Jesus prepares them by praying for them. And he says they need protection. What do they need protection from? It's interesting. If you look at that verse, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. What do they need protection from? It's not from a physical threat. And we know this because as we look at the life of the apostles, after this, all of them except one are martyred for their faith. All except one die for their faith. So it's obviously not physical protection from death. But he says, protect them. Protect them by your name so that they may be one as we are one. He says, what I want you to protect them from is disunity. Protect their unity, Lord God. Keep them united together, which is uh, ironic because in verse 12, Jesus says, I protected them by your name or in your authority to the Father. None was lost except the one that was going to be lost so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus says, I protected all of them except for Judas. Why is this ironic when he talks about protecting their unity? We come across here in this section um, an argument that has been going on in scripture, or um, not in scripture, an argument that has been going on in the church for a very, very long time. Was Judas predestined to reject Jesus? Or did Jesus know that Judas would reject him and that's why he chose him? Was he predestined or was it free will and Jesus just knew ahead of time? <laughs> now, am I not going to answer that today? I'm going to give you an answer for that today. I don't know. <laughs> Scripture, in parts, teaches predestination. In other parts, teaches free will. We, on the other hand, as humans, not having the capacity to truly grasp this, look at this and go, well, it is clearly this, or it is clearly this. When the Bible teaches both, and then we have all kinds of problems because you'll have a church and we'll build our doctrine on these things and we'll start separating from each other, creating disunity because of an adherence to a particular doctrine which is maybe second tier, third tier at best. Now that I've angered people that hold tightly to both sides, we Verse 13 Now I am coming to you, talking to the Father, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Jesus says, the thing that I want for them is I want them to have my joy. Couple things there. Miles taught, oh, I don't know, what was it probably three years ago, leading up to Christmas, taught a message where he said, and I'm paraphrasing, <clears throat> I actually texted him to try to find the right words, and he's like, ooh, I don't know, that was a long time ago. So I'll just, we'll just paraphrase. We receive maximum joy when we bring God maximum glory. When Jesus glorified the Father, and his joy was complete, and he wants that joy for us. How do we get that joy? By glorifying the Father through Jesus. So, joy. Now, why is it a little strange that Jesus is talking about joy here and his joy being complete and his joy being full? Jesus is going to walk out the door. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is going to greet him with a kiss and he's going to be arrested and beaten and ultimately passed from one human court to another human court till he is finally crucified on the cross. 
But he says, man, I want my disciples to have the same joy that I have. Now, if I knew what was coming in my life, I don't know if I would have joy. Maybe if it was good stuff, I'd be like, yeah, that's joyful. If it's bad stuff, like, oh, that might take my joy away. But when we bring God glory, that's when we receive joy. Now, what's the best way that we can bring God glory? By doing what he's called us to do. What is the primary job of Christians? Hmm? To glorify God. How so? What was, what was the first instruction ever given to humans? In the garden, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Multiplication is the first command that we were given. Now, important point. I am not talking just physical multiplication. If you're married, great. Multiply like crazy. Go for it. You have my blessing and God's blessing. What I am more speaking about, though, is God receives maximum glory when we do what we are called to do, and we are called to do the work of an evangelist, like it says in Scripture. We are called to bring those who are far off from God close to him. So if we want to bring Jesus maximum glory, we may bring more people into the household of God, into the family of faith. That's what we are called to do. So... Let me find my place on my notes as I ran away from it here. Ah, verse 14. 14's a good one. There's so many good ones in here, but you notice this? As you read this passage, Jesus has a tendency to pray a little bit like me, or maybe I have a tendency to pray a little bit like Jesus, where there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot. Did I say that already? I don't know if I, and it's like, so yeah, it's a challenging thing to go through, but it's so good. He says, I have given them your word in verse 14. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So he says, they're going to be in the world, Lord. And the world is going to hate them the same way the world hated Jesus. Um, two things for us, well, maybe three things for us to pull out of this. First of all, when the world hates us, we should not be surprised. It should not be a shock to us when we go out in the name of Jesus Christ and seek to expand his kingdom that there are going to be people that are upset with that. John 15, 18, which is earlier in this same conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us, when there's hostility. In verse two, I'm sorry, not verse two, point two, don't allow the world's hatred to separate you from Jesus. Don't be surprised, but don't allow the world's hatred to separate you from Jesus. John 16, one says, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. Part of this same conversation. It says, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. So the world hates you, don't allow that to separate you from God. Sometimes we can be cowed by the world or we can be so afraid of the world. Excuse me. We can be so afraid of the world that it stops us from doing what we're called to do. And the third point in this, the call is to go in the world, to, to go, to, try that again. The call is to go into all the world and make disciples. That's what we've been called to do. And when we do that, we're going to have hostility from the world. But we have been given a great gift that Jesus talks about right here. He says, we've been given the word of God. In Ephesians 
chapter 6, it calls the word of God the sword of the spirit used to battle the evil one. We've been given a weapon, even though the world hates us, this is where we go to find comfort. This is where we go to find ammunition, as it were. This is where we go to find our marching orders. This is where we go. The Bible is where we go to find our direction. Verses 15 here, we get to verse 15. And it says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by the word. Your word is truth. So what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? It means that the world should not have a hold of us. Jesus wants us to be in the world, wants us to be protected, and he wants us to be effective. Why specifically does he say in the world, but not of the world? Why particularly the word in? I think it's because very often we want to call people out of things. We want to call people out of a lifestyle or out of a behavior or out of a belief system or out of, and we want to pull them out of where they are. But Jesus came to pull us in to his family. So often we get those things mixed up where we want to pull somebody out of a behavior, out of a lifestyle without having brought them in. When we bring people into the family of God, that's when the Holy Spirit does the work of cleaning and of, of rejuvenation and of pulling all the junk out. But so often we want to pull people out of something else without having brought them in to the family of God. Unity is the goal. Unity with God, with each other, and with those that we're able to bring out of the world and into the family of God. Um, it's a little bit like foster care. Um, my wife and I are foster parents. We're foster parents. I guess we're not technically anymore. Um, foster care is the process where a child is removed from a dangerous situation and is sent to a place that can provide temporary care before the goal, which is always reunification. Reunification is the process where the child is removed so the family can get whatever needs to be taken care of, taken care of, and the child can go back to the family. That is the goal of the foster care system is reunification. Does that always work? No. Some families, for whatever reason, can't get things back together enough to be taking care of a child. Um, but see, we Christians, we've been placed in this world to find the children that have been removed from the family of God. We all came from Adam and Eve. We all came out of the garden. We all started historically as God's people. And now we're scattered all over the place. And our job as Christians is to find those kids that are hurting, that are separated, that are separate from their father and bring them back into the family. That's what we're called to do. But see, that's why we need protection. Because we are going to be targeted by the evil one. We're going to be targeted by Satan as we try to do this because we are a threat. Do you guys feel like much of a threat? <laughs> Some days I don't feel like Satan's afraid of me. <laughs> Most days, I would say, I don't feel like Satan's quaking in his boots going, oh no, there's Jason. And he really shouldn't because Jason is not a great person in and of himself. Not at all. But see, when we step out in the authority and follow the word of God. We step out in the authority of Christ, doing what he's called us to do, then we are a threat. And that's why, we, that's why we'll receive opposition because all of a sudden, now we are a danger to Satan's kingdom. And he'll, we will be treated that way. But Jesus says, I want you to protect them, but protect their unity most of all. 
And then he says in verse 17, to sanctify them. He says, I, you sanctified me. Let me get there so I quote it correctly. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. So he asks that we would be sanctified. To be sanctified means to be set apart for a purpose. To be specifically set up for a purpose. Uh, and the best way I could think of to describe that came out of my very, very, very brief um, relationship with ultralight hiking. <laughs> now, why are we laughing? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> I got as far as, as buying stuff for it. I have the stuff still. I could still do it. I could do it. It's fine. But the purpose, the goal in ultralight hiking is to get your base weight down to as low as possible. You don't want to carry much because carrying things is hard. So you can go further if you carry less. Ironically, last week we talked about forgiveness and how it's too heavy to carry. Huh, get rid of the weight. But there are two things that every ultralight hiker will carry, and they do similar functions, but they will never be substituted for each other. There's your titanium super low weight spork, which works as your spoon and fork, and if you sharpen an edge of it, it works as a knife. And so like this, this one. And then there's a trowel. The spork is for eating. The trowel is for exactly the opposite. The two do not ever become interchanged. We do not do, they are both set apart for different purposes. They are both sanctified for different purposes. Sometimes we want to have gifts that are not ours. Sometimes we want to have somebody else's gift. Think of it as eating from your trowel and it will help us to maintain the right perspective. Point two in your outline. The word of God is the truth that gives us purpose. Because he, further on in 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Not for the truth, but by the truth. It's the truth that gives us purpose. Your word is truth. The word of God is what gives us purpose. As the people of God, our purpose is only found in the word of God, exclusively. Not in a sports team, not in an occupation, not in a political party, not in a relationship. Our purpose is found solely in Christ. Why is this important? Unity, that's why it's important. Because if we are beholden to anything else over our relationship with God, that will be damaging. Now, Sue was in here last service, and she's a Packers fan, so I picked on her a little bit, because Packers fans are the worst. But <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Unity, right? So, but it's like, you have Packers fans, and you have Seahawks fans. And it's okay to be a Packers fan, and it's okay to be a Seahawks fan, obviously. It's <laughs> the problem comes in when those loyalties that we have supersede the loyalty that we have for Jesus. As soon as one of those things rises up past its place and becomes more important than the unity we have with Jesus, that's when we have problems. That's when we break relationship, that's when our unity is cut off, and that's when we become weak. Now, when it's sports fans, it's funny. When it's some of the other things, we start seeing real hardcore division, both in the world and in the body of Christ. We need, to, we need to guard our unity. When we're united in Christ, we can draw others into the family of God. All right, verse 18. It says, as you sent me into the world, 
I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. We're sent into the world by Jesus the same way that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. We see the same pattern here. We are sent to reflect Jesus as the way to the Father, just like Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled his purpose so that we can be set aside, set apart, sanctified for that same purpose. Jesus went to the cross and was crucified that our debt could be paid so that we could stand up forgiven and then turn around and offer that forgiveness to the rest of the world. That is vital. So, like I said, this is all about connecting with the world. What does any of this have to do with connecting with the world? Verse 20. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So what do we see here? We see it says, I, Jesus says, I pray not just for these, but for those that will hear their word. That includes us. We are both the answer to Jesus' prayer and the continued fulfillment of his prayer as we bring others to Christ. That blows me away that I... Jesus at one point is there praying, maybe even thinking of us, going, there's gonna be those that hear. There's gonna be those, there's gonna be a kid named Jason who's gonna hear this. And then he's gonna come into the family and then Jesus is rejoicing about that. And that blows me away. It's just, it's so comforting to think that Jesus was praying for us. And then he says, may they be one as you father are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. We live in a world that is so broken and so divided and so shattered by all sorts of different things that Jesus says the unity of the people, the unity that he and the fathers share, the unity that we can share through our relationship with Jesus Christ, says that is so amazing that that will be a supernatural sign to people that wow, there is a real God and they serve him because those people can get along. <laughs> it says a lot about our world when that's the... Uh, that's the, de the defining factor, or that's the miracle, that they can actually get along with each other. So verses 23, I am in them and you are in me so that we may be made completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved me and loved, as you have loved them as you have loved me. says he wants us to be given the same glory that God gave to Jesus. Father, I want those who have been given, that you, let me try that again. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that the, they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. He wants us to be given the same glory that God gave Jesus, which blows me away until I think, what, what, what glory did Jesus have? Because he's gonna go from here and he's going to be beaten, mocked, whipped, scourged, crucified, and killed. And it's like, if that's the kind of glory, I don't know about that. But see, the glory comes that we get to be called children of God. That we who are far off, we're drawn close, and we get to see the glory of God as we serve the Father. And then he says that we could be completely one so that the world would know that Jesus was sent by the Father and that God loves his people. Once again, because of our unity as the body of Christ, since people are going to see that and they're going to know that God loves them. <clears throat> and in verse 25, 
It says, righteous father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Jesus says he will continue to make the name of the father known through his people. So that the love of God and the unity of God will be in his people. Point three in your outline if you are taking note. God the Father's desire is that we continue to make him known through Jesus. This is what God wants from us, that we would continue to make the Father known through Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is our marching orders, this is what God wants from us, this is what we are called to do to make Jesus known. So then the question arose to me, then why don't we? Why is it that we, we seem to have a hard time doing this? Why is it sometimes that, that I turn down opportunities and like, well, I really should speak to, I don't want to do that. So I was thinking, why is it that we sometimes don't do this? And the first thing I came up with was fear. Sometimes we're just afraid to do it. Sometimes we're afraid to step out. Sometimes we're afraid to say the thing that God has called us to say or do the thing that God has called us to do because sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's scary because it might harm our position at work. Sometimes it's scary because it might harm a position in a relationship. Sometimes it's scary because we have never done it before. Sometimes it's fear that stops us. Sometimes it's apathy that stops us. Sometimes it's like, meh, it's not really that into it. There's other people that do that. I talked to somebody one time and I was suggesting, hey, you should get involved in this or you should get involved. And they were like, I did all that stuff when I was younger. I don't have to do that anymore. And I was like, that's a... That's a dangerous spot to be in. But it's like, no, I, tick, I, I already ticked that box. That's apathy. And that happens sometimes when we forget that we were once outside the family. We were once outside of the family of God, enemies of God, and then somebody spoke to us and brought us in. And sometimes it's just flat out rebellion. Sometimes it's just like, I don't want to. I'm mad at God for whatever reason, or I've been hurt, and so I don't want to do it, and I'm just not going to do it, God. I'm not going to do it. And then, even when we do it, sometimes why don't we have more success? Sometimes it's because we lead compromised lives. It's hard to represent God when you act like the devil. Sometimes the way we act around certain people makes it very difficult for us to talk about Jesus with those people. Sometimes it's a flat out lack of love. Sometimes our hearts get hard and we don't have empathy for the people around us. Sometimes because we've been hurt by somebody or because we've been constantly dealing with something over and over and over again, sometimes our hearts can get hard and we can just lack empathy at all for them. I will, straight up confession time, I have an extremely hard time dealing with our specifically local homeless, homeless population because we are constantly, constantly, constantly dealing with it, and it feels like it's never gonna end, and pretty soon I stop seeing them as people, and they're just those And then it's like, wait a minute. Jason, those people are loved by God, and Jesus died for them. No, he mostly died for me, not for them. And it's like, yeah, that's just that, you don't wanna say that. So sometimes our hearts are hard, and we don't have empathy for the people around us. Sometimes it's because of our lack of unity. Sometimes a lack of unity in the body of Christ robs us of effectiveness because sometimes we take one part of the body of Christ and say, yeah, that's a good one. Another one's like, you know, manual faith. Oh, I don't know. And it's like, wait a minute. 
they, they love Jesus and teach the Bible. Okay, but what about North Coast? <laughs> no, no. They love Jesus and they preach the Bible. Okay, but what about, and we want to like say, well, our church is the best. And I think we are the best, but it's only because Jesus loves us more. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Absolutely kidding. There are Bible-believing churches all through Escondido, all throughout the world that love Jesus. And if somebody finds a home there, praise God. If it's not my church, I'm glad it's somebody else's church. In, uh, it was like 2014, we went to Mozambique. And it became very clear as early as Johannesburg that this was not a place that I would naturally fit in. I looked different than everybody else, and there was a, a palpable feeling of hostility, specifically in Johannesburg. As we made our way into Mozambique, it became abundantly clear that I have nothing in common. We ended up in places that had never seen a white person before. There was no indoor plumbing. There was no plumbing at all. The food was different, the customs were different, the mannerisms were different, and besides not looking the same, we didn't even speak the same language. And so I'm sitting there like, Lord, how am I gonna, what, how am I effective in this situation? And I can hear God chuckling in hindsight. We linked up with a local church there. We didn't speak the same language. Their church building is very different. Their worship is very different. But they serve and love the same God. And it was supremely evident as we worshiped together, not being able to understand each other. It was, it was super kind because they actually learned a song in English. They didn't understand what they were singing, but they sang it so that we would feel a little more, you know, we who were missionaries, so that we would feel better. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was an amazing time and we did amazing ministry together even though we had nothing in common except for Jesus because ultimately as the church, the only thing we need in common is Jesus. That is where we need to protect that unity so much. Sometimes we don't have success because we have a lack of tact or we don't know, you know how to speak to people. Um, the, the pastor who married my wife and I is uh, Mike, uh, Mike Madigan from Julian. And he was telling us a story one time about he and a friend of his, a new convert, and they were going witnessing on the beach at Oceanside. And they were walking along and Mike's talking to people and, he's, you know, he's, and the other guys, the Marine guy is talking to the other people and all of a sudden he hears this ruckus coming up behind him and he turns around and the Marine has a guy by the neck and he's screaming at him about how much he needs Jesus and Mike's like, whoa, that's not how we do this. Sometimes we have a lack of tact and that's why we're not effective. Sometimes it's because we're trying to convert and not trying to disciple. Jesus calls us to go into the world and make disciples, but sometimes we want to we want to do the thing where we go up and throw a track and run away. Like <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with tracks. Oh, I'm losing pages here. There's nothing wrong with tracks. There's nothing wrong with handing out tracks. But see, God calls us to discipleship. Discipleship is ongoing and messy. And like the conversation we were having earlier today, please, 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 don't ever use one of those money tracks to tip your waitress or your waiter. It's so mean. Don't do that. As somebody who's married to a former waitress, if you're gonna tip them with that, at least tip them with real money too. So, point four in your outline. 
We are close to being done, sort of. We are called to be better. As the body of Christ, we are called to be better. The antidote to all the problems, the reasons why we don't, and the reasons why we're not effective, the antidote to all of these is exactly what Jesus did. Pray. When Jesus was afraid, he prayed. When Jesus was tempted, he answered with the word of God. What do we need to do? We need to pray. We need to go to the word to answer all of our questions, our weaknesses, our feelings. We answer those with the living and powerful word of God. If we're afraid, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of sound judgment. If we're apathetic, Galatians 6 9 says, Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. If our problem is rebellion, Ezekiel 2.8 says, And you, son of man, listen to what I tell you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm going to give you. If we're compromised in James 4.4, 4, it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whomever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. If there's a lack of love, we can go to Corinthians chapter 3, where we spent a lot of time last week, where he says, Therefore, as God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive others. If the problem is unity, it's the very next verse in Colossians chapter 3. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If we lack tact, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. But see, the thing is, it's not enough just to know the verses. Because we can memorize verses and we probably all know that person that has all the verses memorized and yet there's still something missing. It's not enough to know the verses. We need to pray. Yes, we need to know the word. But we also need to pray. And then we need to take that radical third step, which is to obey. Very often, we wait for something other than stepping out in obedience. We wait for, Lord, give me a sign. I put it in the word. Yeah, but I want another sign. No, it's in the Bible. That, that's enough sign. Well, I'm waiting for a sign. Don't do that. We need, we, need, we need to know the word of God. We need unity with God in prayer and submission to God in obedience. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter four. We're gonna start in verse 11. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is talking here specifically about Jesus as our rest. In verse 11, he says, let us make every effort to, entertain that, to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Make every effort so that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience. We tend to have patterns of disobedience. We tend to struggle the same way with the same things at the same time. And here scripture tells us, make an effort so that you don't fall in the same pattern of disobedience. Like intentionally like alter things so you don't fall in that same place. And it goes on in verse 12, for the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is something that we cannot do. I cannot judge your thoughts and intentions the same way that you can't judge my thoughts and intentions. All we can see from one another is actions. But the word of God is incredibly good 
at cutting through a lot of our smoke screen and going right to our thoughts and intentions. It says in verse 13, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything that we do is laid out before God and we are called to give an account. But verse 14, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Our confession is that Jesus is my Lord. That I hold on to. When everything else is falling apart around me, I can hold on to that and go, you know what? Nothing is going to snatch me out of his hand. We need to hold fast to that confession. For we do not, verse 15, have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We have a Savior. We have Jesus who understands what it is to be tempted. Now, he did not fall into temptation. He was tempted and did not sin. But he understands temptation. He gets us. Therefore, he says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. He says, let us approach the throne of grace boldly. Imagine being too able to approach God's throne with boldness. To go, yes, I belong here. Because you know what? I don't feel like I belong there. Because I don't. But it's Christ in me that allows me to find that grace. To be able to approach boldly. It's the Christ in me that allows me to go to somebody and say, hey, how you doing, man? I'm Jason. What's your name? Talking about boldness. Between the services today, I was talking with somebody. And he's like, dude, you got to hear this. And I was like, okay. And part of me is thinking, is this a sales pitch? <laughs> and he goes, no. I, goes, I heard from Miles that he wasn't feeling well. And so my daughter and I were praying for him. His daughter's like six. And so they were praying for Miles to get better. Um, but then he said, his daughter said, well, we should also pray that if he can't do it, we should pray for whoever else is going to be preaching that they would be bold. He told me that. I was like, This girl has not completed junior high. She's not completed grade school. She doesn't, she, she's not read the entire Bible, I'm assuming. She has not gone to seminary. She doesn't hold advanced degrees. But see, she loves Jesus, and Jesus said, I want you to pray for this. That same Jesus is alive and working in us, and we can approach the throne of grace with boldness to find grace in our time of need and receive mercy. Worship team's gonna go forward, and we're gonna worship together. Heavenly Father, what, a, what an incredible privilege, Lord Jesus, it is to approach your throne, the throne of grace, and receive mercy, not because of our fantasticness, Jesus, but because of you that you've told us we can approach with boldness, that we can receive mercy. Father God, that, that we can approach you because you're the same God that speaks to a six-year-old with your words and with your intentions, Lord. The same God that can unite people who don't speak the same language and don't live the same way. 
Lord, the same God that can take a church that is full of all, all kinds of different people, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of walks of life, with every difference imaginable yet have unity. Lord Jesus, help us to guard that unity. Help us to, uh, to celebrate that unity with each other. And Father God, help us to be ruthless with the things that divide us. Thank you, Jesus. Let's worship Jesus. Thank you.